Thank you, Al and Norman and Rob. That was that was fabulous. Um, I have to tell you that that um, first of all, that uh, Al's wife Teresa is the, the, was the creator of this beautiful quilt behind me. Uh, Teresa passed away some time ago, but whenever Al plays in church, uh, that quilt is up behind the chancel. And also uh, today's service is a, a sermon not on math. You might think that based on the <laughs> stories this morning. But it's a, serv- a sermon on patriarchy. And um, when Al was offering up some uh, possible uh, pieces of music for the service, one of the things he mentioned without knowing what the subject matter was was the theme from The Godfather. <laughs> so we sort of thought about it and then, you know. This morning's text, uh, the reading, second reading this morning, is from the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. I slept, but my heart was awake. Hark, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh upon the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him but did not find him. I called, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They wounded me. They took away my mantle, those sentinels of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him I am faint with love. The Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is an oasis in the Hebrew Bible. It is a book of only eight chapters, but the song overflows with the rich imagery of the garden and of nature and the beautiful language of passion. It is an erotic love poem that allows us in on a conversation between two lovers whose passion and whose respect for each other is mutual. The lovers take turns describing each other's physical gifts, seeking and hiding from each other, calling each other to union, imagining the time when their love will be fulfilled. And though the song is not a narrative, we are pulled along, ultimately finding in its passages the affirmation that love is strong as death. It is a model of sensual love and mutuality right there in the Bible between the book of Ecclesiastes and the prophecies of Isaiah. Who figured? These two lovers are non-conforming to the, not conforming to the culturally expected rules of engagement where marriage was more a family and social contract than it was a romantic courtship. My beloved is mine and I am his the woman states with assurance. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, her lover says, the darling of her mother, 
flawless to her that bore her. And yet, and yet, ever present in the background are those sentinels of the walls, the guardians of propriety, the keepers of the status quo, reminding us that can be dangerous to stray too far from the norm. The Song of Solomon presents a wonderful and unexpected departure from the traditional gender roles as depicted in much of the Bible, but it is not fully free from the patriarchal culture in which it was created. 3,000 years later, this patriarchal system holds sway throughout much of the world and still, still needs to be challenged as it was in this text. Where theologians used to believe that the song was an allegorical text describing God's relationship with the people of Israel or the individual's journey to union with God, most modern scholars believe that the song was written simply as a love poem on a very human scale. Feminist commentators and theologians have now used the song as a wedge to begin to present an interpretation of the Bible that doesn't have the patriarchal blinders of their male counterparts as they have had down through the ages. And with the benefit of fresh eyes, these scholars study the text and the relevant cultures and see new possibilities for application to our own times. In looking at the literature of the day, they point to examples of love poetry from other parts of the Middle East, and in particular to collections of love poems from about the 12th century BCE in Egypt as offering close parallels to the song and sharing many of the same motifs. There is, in fact, significant archaeological evidence that hierarchical relationships between males and females in those areas were less prescribed in ancient times and especially in Egypt. And in Egypt, it took much longer for patriarchy to, to, take, to hold sway. And this doesn't mean that the cultures were predominantly matriarchal by any stretch. But there was a strong focus on the life-creative power of women, a role that was culturally elaborated and valued. And thus the song follows an international genre that did view women as partners, lovers, and mediators in divine life. Patriarchy, it seems, is something that developed after human beings began to make the split with nature, taming and controlling the environment as we did, first through agriculture and then through the domestication of animals. Anthropologist Elizabeth Fisher argues that the split between humanity and the rest of nature sowed the seeds for a more general and profound disconnection in social life. And it did this by providing a model of control and domination based on the distinction between self and other. As I read this, I could only think of the biblical fall from grace. Instead of seeing life as an undifferentiated whole, the stage was set for dividing the world between controllers and the controlled. And while we can't know for certain that how this actually played out, this is a useful hypothesis, the point being that patriarchy has developed hand-in-hand hand with human civilization, and it's been a slow process to get where we are today. We can certainly point to some recent progress uh, in, in the recent decades, and, but the predominant system that we've inherited from so many past generations is one that promotes male privilege, 
by being male-dominated, male-identified, and male-centered. It is also organized around obsession with control. Fisher and others believe this inheritance is cultural, not biological. Human beings are not hardwired to organize and maintain oppressive systems. While we certainly have natures that tend to hoard, to compete, and to be aggressive on our own behalf and that of our kin, we also count among our human qualities compassion, cooperation, and the ability to compromise. Looking at modern patriarchal systems, sociologist Alan Johnson suggests that they are driven by the dynamic between control and fear of men seeking status and security through control, fearing other men's control over them, and seeing more control as the only solution. Johnson feels it's credible to suppose that this dynamic was key to the origins and evolution of patriarchy. And even more foundational to why men are susceptible to a system of fear and control, Johnson suggests, is that men have few reminders of the body and its relation to the natural rhythms of birth, renewal, and death, making it easier for men to stand apart and creating a greater distinction between self and other. As it does in the Song of Songs, the will to control oppresses and can breed violence. The beloved may be feeling a new and profound sense of identity in her love, but she, if she expresses it too publicly, she will be checked and put in her place. Is that so much different than the world in which we live today? Caribbean-American poet and activist June Jordan penned this poem about my rights not that long ago. Even tonight, and I need to take a walk and clear my head about this poem, about why I can't go out without changing my clothes, my shoes, my body posture, my gender identity, my age, my status as a woman alone in the evening, alone on the streets, alone not being the point, the point being that I can't do what I want to do with my own body because I am the wrong sex, the wrong age, the wrong skin, and suppose... It was not here in the city, but down on the beach or far out into the woods. And I wanted to go there by myself, thinking about God or thinking about children or thinking about the world. And all of it disclosed by the stars and the silence. I could not go. And I could not think. And I could not stay there alone as I need to be alone because I can't do what I want to do with my own body. And who in the hell set things up? like this. Like June Jordan, the beloved of the Song of Solomon is darker-skinned, and thus this relationship between these two lovers is even more striking in its nonconformity. The author of the song seems to be challenging the social structures of the day, pushing on a number of buttons. Commentators like Cheryl Exum remind us that care is needed in making generalizations about past cultures. But the depiction of constraints to certain social behaviors is real, and there are laws and codes that exist around, from around those times that give very specific parameters about women's dress and behavior and where they go in public. The punish, punishment levied out to the beloved in the song aligns almost exactly with the written codes from the time period. 
and they aren't much different from the norms that exist today in some parts of the world. Violence against women has always been a matter of control. In our own country, laws that deal with how women and other marginalized populations should be treated in our society is still debated. The Unitarian Universalist Association has worked long and hard to bring these issues to the fore, passing the Women and Religion Resolution in 1977, an effort in which our own Pat Simon was involved. And the UUA has followed that up over the years with additional resolutions and study issues to help keep women's rights and now GLBTQ issues in our consciousness. But even within our movement, the initial efforts to bring these resolutions to public discussion faced serious resistance. And while we chip away at the edges, passing resolutions and laws that highlight the issues and work to protect those who were oppressed, we are not changing the deeply held system that is the foundation for all resistance to change. We may identify with the woman from the Song of Song and her newfound love that bubbles up. We may identify with the man and his reverence for the woman who has ravished his heart. We can be playful along with the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus in the poem that includes us and allows us a window in on this passionate relationship. But we are also, all of us, men and women alike, those sentinels of the walls guardians of propriety and keepers of the status quo. We are those sentinels, if only in our tacit participation in governmental and economic systems that oppress some while rewarding others. And while the ones who benefit and those who get to make the decisions are predominantly white and male and heterosexual. Now, at this point, you may be sitting out there thinking to yourselves that I'm preaching to the choir. We are, after all, progressive people here, right? Already sensitized to these issues. So let me take a moment to share a very recent personal story. I like to think that my wife, Anne, and I have the kind of mutual relationship where we share the love and the load. But occasionally she has to remind me about the load part. After I had my appointment with the Ministerial Fellowship Committee in early December and was feeling all grand and self-important, Anne and I were getting ready to host my family's annual Christmas dinner in celebration, which was happening the Sunday before Christmas. While Anne planned the meal and thought through the details, I retreated back to my study to work on my final term papers. While she did the shopping and began the food preparation, I thought it important to begin preparing materials so I could enter the ministerial search process immediately. Now, Anne loves to entertain. But this is a fact that both I and my whole family take for granted. So when the date approached and no help had been proffered, Anne ever so graciously reminded me that she was adding this effort on top of her own normally busy routine And it was certainly within my capability to do the same thing. (laughs) I'd like to say that it was the only time she had ever needed to give me such a reminder. (laughs) But that would be untrue. But since this happened about the time I was thinking about this sermon, I began to wonder what message 
messages I had passed along to my young adult sons over their 20-plus years. How well did I really model mutuality in relationship? To the extent that any of us benefit from the current systems, we can be seduced into going along or even to full participation. But we are all victims in that we will never fully experience a life built on true mutuality between people of any and all gender identities, male or female, straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or genderqueer, and how rich that would be. A culture that celebrates difference instead of one that feels the need to keep watch. If we truly wish to see change, to find beloved community, we need to lean away from being those sentinels of the walls. Widen the embrace of our love and continue to challenge the status quo. And believe it or not, this is exactly the message you will see in this little book that sits in the middle of the Hebrew Bible. Can we change something so firmly established and deeply rooted? Not in our lifetime, perhaps, but that's not the point. Should we give the opportunity to have more pe- have people have a, a greater piece of the pie? Not that either. As Rosemary Matson, one of the framers of the Women in Religion Resolution, said, we do not want a piece of the pie. It's still a patriarchal pie. We want to change the recipe. The current recipe, Alan Johnson tells us, is riddled with internal contradiction and strain. It is based on the false and self-defeating assumption that control is the answer to everything. And neither patriarchy or any other system will last forever. The transformation of patriarchy, he says, has been unfolding ever since it emerged 7,000 years ago, and it's going on still. What we need to do is to continue to support efforts to chip away at the outside, working to change institutions and through advocacy and legislation, but we also need to change from within, within ourselves and also within the institutions in which we contribute, where we work. The UUA can speak for us, but it can't act for us. It can only put the issue out there in front of us for us to pick up the gauntlet. The Women and Religion Resolution asked us to examine carefully our own religious beliefs to the extent to which those beliefs influence sex role stereotypes within our own families, in our own spheres of influence. It's a small thing on a very human scale that can make a difference. Cultural and societal shifts start with personal transformation. And there are a number of things we can do to make this world a more equitable place for women and for men, no matter their gender identity. First, we acknowledge that patriarchy exists and educate ourselves about it. This also means that as we learn, we need to pay attention to what's really going on around us, opening up the lens through which we observe this world and looking at examples of patriarchy at work. Next, we need to learn to listen, something that is often difficult for members of a dominant culture. Opening our ears so that we hear the voices of those who are oppressed and how their lives are impacted by the systems that we tacitly promote. Finally, we need to take steps towards change, to stand and be heard, find ways to withdraw our support from those simple paths of least resistance that sometimes we take, bucking the tide against going with the flow. And this might simply mean not laughing at the next sexist joke you hear, 
or pointing out sexist language where you find it. Dare to make people uncomfortable, and let's start with ourselves. Nothing changes without a little discomfort. So let's start by asking each other how deep into the fabric of our own lives are we willing to carry our Unitarian Universalist principles? Wherever you find yourself, look around and ask the questions that are begging to be asked. Is this an equitable situation? Why aren't there more women or people of color or people of differing gender identities in this meeting? Or why aren't there more women or people of color or people of differing gender identities in positions of power? The Song of Solomon came out of a particular time and place, and we have to be careful. We don't detract too much from its poetic beauty by reading too much into its passages. That's been done before. But there in the song is everything we need to make change in the world. There is mutual love and respect. There is hope. There is hesitancy and uncertainty. And there is boldness and passion. And then there are those sentinels of the walls whose job it is to maintain the status quo. We are the lovers. We are the chorus. We are those sentinels of the walls. The song is rich with the motif of the garden, but if we truly wish to create the garden anew, to find beloved community, we need to lean away from being the sentinels and continue to widen the embrace of our love. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen.